and welcome to this bonus episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. My name is Michael Brooks. In our previous episode, episode 16, Sam and I discussed the new Canadian horror drama film Violation, a brutal and harrowing film about a woman who experiences a shocking assault and subsequently seeks to process her trauma through violent revenge. It's the debut feature film by creative duo Dusty Mancinelli and Madeline Sims Fewer. Madeline Sims Fewer also stars in the lead role as Miriam. Uh, Sam and I both agreed it's a powerful and well-achieved film that does something really quite brave and interesting with the subject matter, and it's available now to stream on Shudder. Uh, so for this bonus episode, uh, we uh, recorded an interview with uh, both Dusty and Madeline. I uh, should just say that we do discuss some issues that uh, may be distressing to some listeners. We'll be back with the usual episode, our usual Wednesday morning slot. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us uh, this afternoon, taking time out. I actually wanted to start by by asking about something visual in the film that was a real surprise, something that you don't often see uh, in very many other films. Uh, I'm referring, of course, to the wonderful shots of the wolf. Please tell me about the how it was. How, how was it filming the wolf? There's some fantastic shots you got there. It was one of the first days um, of the shoot and it was so amazing. We knew that when we were writing the script, we'd specifically written a black wolf. Um, that was very hard to find, but we kind of didn't want to give up on that and, and did end up being able to find the uh, two black wolves to shoot with. And it, it was, I think we've had all these um, storyboards planned for the whole film and for the wolf in particular, we had this very specific idea of what we wanted. and. As soon as the wolf arrived on set, we realized we weren't going to get any of the things that we'd storyboarded. And we just had to kind of fly by the seat of our pants and really just work with what the wolf was giving us, which was way better than than what we could have scripted anyway. Yeah, and we were shooting um, in the early hours of dawn. We started, I think, at four in the morning. And, you know, you're so tired and this this like really majestic creature shows up and you know, the, the animal trainers were so professional and handled them so well that you, you, you forget that this is a real wild animal until it's like, you know, eating, eating (laughs) eating the rabbit and the chicken. Um, but after filming, we were just so in awe. We, we pose for this picture and we have this picture where we're kneeling next to the wolf and the wolf starts like nibbling on my ear and it's licking it. And we're just all smiling. And then after the the trainer came up to me and they're like, you're so lucky he didn't just rip off your ear. Like you should not have done that. But we were just, you know, in this kind of... We were just enthralled by it. Under it a was spell. Really, yeah, it was a very inspiring day. Yeah, I can confirm to listeners, Dusty isn't missing part of his ear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was your this is your first feature length film. Did you find it a challenge making that transition from, from the short films that you've been making previously to to you know, a long feature length film or ha- tell me about that transition how you found it yeah we've been making short films for 13 years and we started our collaboration as co-directors but five years ago we made three shorts together and i think over the years it, it becomes really daunting this idea of making your first feature um but really it, i all i could say is that it was lovely and very very much like making a short and what I wasn't prepared for was just the sheer endurance, um, Mm. physically, emotionally, psychologically, what it meant to be on set for that many hours for those many, we shot for 33 days and we did a like two months of prep. So it was, that was probably the thing I was not prepared 
prepared for. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely daunting. I think you build it up in your head the more you make short films and the more you think. I remember being in film school and thinking, okay, I I have to make my first feature before I'm 30. I had some sort of weird thing where I was looking to Spielberg and all these filmmakers who made their first features in their their mid-20s and um, and I set that task for myself. And then you realize that you just have to make your feature when you're ready to make it. And I think we just felt like we were, this was the time for both of us when we were really ready. I think next time we'll actually train physically yeah, as yeah. if we're going to run a marathon. Because I think <laughs> I just like the amount of, um, we also, we produced the film on our own. And so we just were working around the clock. I think we took one day off in three months and it was just like, Someone gave us the, who was it that gave us the advice of where buy good shoes? Yeah, Deepa, Deepa Meta, one of our executive producers mentioned that to us. And I thought it was a joke at the time and didn't take it seriously enough. And now I realize, oh no, that's probably the best advice you can ever give someone making their first feature. Completely uh, understand that about, uh, yeah, looking to people. Spielberg's probably the worst person to look at, isn't he? Because didn't he make Jaws when he was about 25 or something? (laughs) Horrendous like that. You know, P.T. Anderson, Wes Anderson, although it seems like I don't know how they did it, but, you know, before they were 30, they made some masterpieces. (laughs) Tell me about how you how you guys first met. What was it that drew you uh, to start working together collaboratively? Yeah, we met at the TIFF Talent Lab in 2015. And we were, I think, we didn't know at the time that we were looking for a collaborator, but it just we clicked. um, We became fast friends and then we went to do our master's in film production in Toronto. And it was there that we um, had the opportunity to collaborate together. I think we we were both just kind of, we're both very collaborative people. Um, and that our collaboration started as just us having these long conversations about the types of films we wanted to make. And there was so much crossover. I think it just became a natural thing. And we thought, okay, let's make, we had this class, um, this directing class, and with this wonderful, outspoken Romanian professor. And we made, we thought we'll just make two um, short films together as collaborators in this class and see how it goes. And if it's shit and it doesn't work at all, then that's fine. It's just a, a, a class exercise. And if it, if it works, then it works. And it ended up being, I think, the first time that both of us actually had fun during the filming process. So it wasn't, normally it's just so stressful. I found and I, I was always questioning whether I really was cut out for directing because I found it so incredibly stressful and emotionally draining and painful and arduous. And it just wasn't, even though there were still stresses and there were still tensions and problems to overcome, it's it was so much more fun and easy with the two of us working together. And I think we knew after our first short, hey, this is working so well, let's just join forces. We, we both had our own kind of separate slate of ideas that we were developing and then we just put them together and then um decided to just move forward as a team as a writing directing Mm -hmm. producing team and we started writing violation about three years ago and really it's um it was the culmination of i think uh many different themes and ideas that we were exploring in our shorts uh power dynamics between men and women um trauma and sexual abuse and and for us you know our friendship was founded um on our own shared histories of abuse and trauma in our past. And I think for us, it was really important to try to tell a story in a way that felt really authentic to us, to our experiences, um, and try to do it in a, in a way that was really uncompromising. Yeah, um, I think uh, both of us also really felt like whatever films you're making, and we don't just want to see ourselves as horror filmmakers, but whatever film 
um, you're making, it should be something that you're passionate about at the time. It should be something that really is meaningful to you and urgent and important um, for you to tell. And that it, violation was just a story that that we were really, really passionate to tell. We wanted to tell a revenge story that really pulls back the curtain on what revenge looks like um, and the real grisly nature of revenge. There are plenty of you know, very famous uh, directing duos um, and there are plenty of directors who direct themselves in lead roles. It's more unusual to come across uh, you know, a duo where one director is also directing themselves in a, in a lead role. And I was, I'm just interested in, in hearing a little bit more about, about that dynamic. I mean, Madeline, what's it like from, a, from an acting perspective? I mean, in order to, did you find in order to fully get yourself into that character and focus on the performance, did you need to relinquish some of that directorial control to Dusty? And, and Dusty, maybe you could tell us a bit like what it's like from, from that directorial perspective. Yeah, I absolutely had to relinquish directorial control in those moments where I'm in the scenes. I don't think that that uh, the performance would have been possible without me doing that. Um, and I mean, the way that we work together is we are so um, meticulous about our prep um, and we work together to, as I said before, we storyboard and we um, shot list and we do floor plans. And then we talk endlessly about um, how we want, how we imagine the scenes emotionally and um, how, and then we block them out and, so I feel like there's nothing kind of lost when I go into that, the acting side. I know, I totally trust that that Dusty knows our shared vision just as I know it. Um, and he has to trust me in, in the acting side as well that I'm going to carry that out. And part of the, the really fun um, thing that we do as kind of when we work as director, um, actor, is that I, I can kind of be a tool to for directing in the scene. So um, we can talk about, um, what we want from the other actor and then I can go in instead of giving that actor a note um, we can I can carry the note as the as the actor in the scene and kind of provoke a response from them that we want which is a really great way of working because it, it um, creates that kind of spontaneity that you don't get when you just say okay I want you to be more of this or more of that to the actor yeah and we've had a lot of practice with our short films we've made two shorts where madeline stars in the film and then another short where she's not in it at all which was really great just for us to you know sharpen our on-set directing collaboration so that we had again a unified vision about how we wanted to approach uh, performance and and how we wanted to run a set as directors and i think that shorthand really just helped make the process of doing the feature together quite seamless and we're spending a lot of time writing the script together as well. So we, you know, part of our creative process is trying to find a way to challenge each other's ideas while at the same time aspiring to find um, an alignment, uh, some kind of unification between our, our shared ideas. Um, so by the time we get into pre-production and we get on set, so much prep has been done to really challenge the ideas that is very rare um, that there's ever going to be um, a challenge because Madeline's in front of the camera. In fact, I think it actually allows us in many ways to do things that we might not be able to do. Um, like Madeline said, discreetly directing other actors through her performance, which is a lot of fun. And I, I think for myself, I, I feel this additional kind of burden, perhaps, that I, I have to make sure that Madeline knows that I'm there to carry our shared vision um, because I, I, I don't want her as an actor to worry at all about what we're capturing. She's got to be completely present in the moment 
Um, and I think a lot of it is about compartmentalizing your own role. Like mm-hmm. you're not, um, it's not like you turn off directing uh, because you're now an actor. It's that you're, you're choosing the moments of the day when you know you need to just become the actor. And then when you can take a step back yeah. and become the director again, you know, watching dailies every single night and, and over weekends rehearsing. And, and again, we're, we're spending so much time trying to get to that place that, it, it feels quite seamless. And for us, we have this kind of rule where uh, the best idea always wins. And so whoever's the most passionate in the moment, we just defer to them. So that usually helps mitigate any kind of um, unforeseen conflicts that might arise. I mean, we all we all agreed on, on the, the podcast that we recorded at the weekend. That, I mean, Madeline, the performance is absolutely astonishing. It's a real powerhouse of a performance. Thank you. But the performances and the dynamic between between all four of the characters is it feels really naturalistic. I wonder how how did you go about achieving that? Was it the case that that some of the scenes were improvised because it definitely felt like that in some of the set the big set piece scenes between the four characters? Yeah, it, rehearsal is really really important to us, and I think above anything, when we started working together, it was a um, kind of a desire to really put performance first in film and to um, ground performances and kind of go as far as we possibly can with with the acting and making it as naturalistic as possible. So we did uh, quite a lot of rehearsals. We had all the actors come to the set and live. we all lived there together for about 10 days um, and rehearsed together. And when we rehearse, we're not just rehearsing the scenes, although we do, we do that a bit. Um, most of the time we're kind of doing character building exercises or improvising around the scenes um, or we'll do things like we'll we'll eat dinner together in character um, we'll go for a swim in character and just kind of discover things about ourselves and we do this we do an exercise as well where we'll pick key moments from the characters lives um, so for example Greta and Dylan's wedding day um, the morning of their wedding, and then we'll reenact them. So we'll we'll just live in in that moment for for four hours or something. And and there's just some amazing bonding that happens when you live as the characters like that, and you're creating these real memories that you can then, when when we're actually on set, draw on. You can say, remember that thing that, and, and Dusty is there, of course, as well, watching these rehearsals, and and we can say, remember that thing that Miriam said to you on the morning of your wedding how did that make you feel and then that becomes part of the of the scene yeah we're really inspired by filmmakers like Mike Lee who work so closely with their actors to develop their characters and I think for us we um, give a lot of freedom to the to the cast that we're working with um, to challenge uh, us and ask really um, thought-provoking questions about their character to deepen our understanding of who they are and um, we create a lot of like a safe space on set where there's just a lot of freedoms for exploration. Um, and it's something we learned on a short film we made chubby. We were filming with, um, a 10 year old girl who's never acted before. And we quickly realized a few hours into filming that we had to change our process to accommodate the fact that we were working with someone who's never been in front of the camera before. And it was little things like we took the slate that you normally put in front of the camera and we put it at the very end. It's called the tail slate. And we just did the whole short as a tail slate. What an end board for the, for right. the British people. The British <laughs> board. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we removed marks, which is typically you put down on the ground for focus. Uh, and we, we shot with all natural light. So we didn't have lights and stands and things that would kind of make it a little daunting. And we really enjoyed that, that process of really putting 
the actor first and giving them a lot of freedom and exploration. It really worked with this young girl. And so we carry that forward in violation. And that really allows for a lot of room for improvisation at the beginning and at the end of scenes. And we would also just strategically look through these long scenes that we had and try to find a natural kind of rhythm or break where there might be room for um, improvisation. Um, and then just really encouraged um, through the rehearsal process, um, this idea of calling upon these experiences, shared experiences that the cast have had with one another. I think it's also really helpful that um, Jesse Lavercom, who plays the brother-in-law, he has acted alongside Madeline in our first short film, Slap Happy, and he was in uh, our short uh, Chubby as well. So we had already established a really strong kind of collaboration with and him. And he's a writer. He's um, also a, a writer. writer. Yeah. So, I mean, part of our rehearsal process, um, I remember we were planning a weekend of rehearsal for the tool shed scene and he uh, came to us and it was really clear that he really wanted to workshop the lines. And we, we just spent the whole day kind of ripping it apart and starting over, trying to really find a more naturalistic language. And I think, yeah, I think it was what was really important to him, which was so really made uh, that scene so much stronger is he wanted to completely understand uh, Dylan's train of thought and how he could get to this. It's not just that he's gaslighting to him. He isn't to him. He, he is um, kind of, he's telling what he thinks happened. And then when he realizes what, what really happened, he's terrified for himself. And it was, um, Every single step, knowing mm -hmm. how we get from that line to that line and really making sure that we're not judging his character on the page, which is a really challenging thing to do, as, <laughs> given, you know, what we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and that just makes the, the whole characterization far more complex. As, as has been uh, commented on by numerous other uh, reviewers and, and commentators, the film, it departs from, uh, from a, a lot of other, I mean, put it crudely, sort of rape revenge films, uh, in that Miriam, she's not presented as a heroine underdog to cheer on, uh, like in a lot of films, you know, like I Spit on Your Grave and such and such films. She's a much more complex character. Um, and as well, the way in which the rape scene is shot, it's you know, very close up, almost hinted at, contrasted with the with the revenge which is you know really almost feels voyeuristic and drawn out was was the intention there to to really to be confounding audience expectations in terms of this type of film because it's, it's also very different than the film that i uh, sort of draw, draw parallels with is uh, of course noah's uh, irreversible w with that minimalist maximalist approach was yeah was the intention there to, to really sort of confound audience expectations in that way I think the, the intention for us more was in not doing, in kind of challenging people's ideas of how they feel about rape and sexual assault. And we've, we're so used to seeing this uh, portrayal of kind of the, the virginal righteous woman who the only way she can overcome her rape is by getting revenge on her assaulter. Um, and then the, the rapist is this creepy guy in an alleyway or this hillbilly in the woods. And it's and that and that's uh, very easy to get behind. Um, but if we're looking at at real people who have been sexually assaulted, it's not always like that. And and often everybody is a complicated person, and everyone has good and bad facets to them. And Miriam is is a, a difficult person to like. Um, and I think we we wanted to show that yet this happens to people who are good and this happens to people who are complicated and it happens to people who are shitty. 
um, that doesn't make it any less of what it is that happens. And I think also in showing, in portraying the the rape and the violence, it was kind of multifaceted that what we we were going for there. We really wanted to look at at um, the almost the dangers of seeing revenge as a cathartic goal, um, end goal, and something that wipes the slate clean because it's not. That's exactly the, the the word we use to describe it. You don't get that catharsis. There isn't that sense with the revenge that, it, that is catharsis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, that was really important to us right from the very beginning is how can we, it's almost an anti-revenge film. Um, and I think, you know, for us, having, you know, experienced abuse and trauma in our past, it's very easy to, to tant- like to fantasize about revenge um, as a coping mechanism. Um, and it can lead you down really dark paths mm-hmm. in your own mind. And I think we were trying to scare ourselves, not wanting to, to not seek revenge, right? To really show what is the implications of revenge on someone's morality and, and their, their emotional, psychological well-being? How does it really affect them and their relationships? Um, and that was really, I think, at the heart for us about how we structured the film. You know, the, the revenge takes place right in the middle of the movie. It's not at the climax. Um, and really that juxtaposition that you were talking about the grisly nature of the violence and the the kind of intimacy of, of the the assault. There, there's a claustrophobia that we were trying to kind of simulate this sense of anxiety. Um, we're not used to seeing sexual assault taking place where the, the victim is asleep and unconscious. And that was really important to us to really show there's no ambiguity in the film about, you know, did this happen? It, it, it happened. But we're not used to seeing it happen in such a way where someone awakes and it, it's too late for them to really do anything. They can't stop it from and the, um, and it's happening. there's again a, an easiness to sexual violence when it is a, this stranger um, and when it is very violent um, to take kind of the irreversible scene. Um, of course, that's horrifying. But it's but sexual assault is just as horrifying in the mind of the victim when it is. Uh, soft and when it is um, somebody who you know and trust and there's still a deep insidiousness to it. Yeah, and that, that's actually more terrifying, this idea that it lurks in the shadows, that it, you know, it, it permeates um, our kind of social fabric without us really being aware of it. Even, you know, given COVID, we're just reading reports of how sexual abuse has risen dr- drastically because often abuse is happening within the uh, household within a family mm. within uh, a group of uh, family members where there's this bond of trust and familiarity uh, that sometimes we take for granted yeah absolutely um so in this country uh, over the last uh, two or three months there was a, a young woman who was murdered um sort of quite near here actually near enough in, in central london um, and what that's done is it's 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 placed a renewed spotlight on the violence against women and girls um, and there's some politicians and some organizations who have raised the issue of uh, the UK's conviction rate for rape which is around I think uh, most recent stat is I think it's below 1.5 percent um, and you know the the, the the point that they have raised is that this is effectively rape has been decri- effectively decriminalized I don't know what the situation is like in Canada I'm I, make an assumption that it's not wildly different wildly better but if perhaps correct me if if i'm wrong on that but something i took from the film uh, and the way that it explores the notion of punishment um, in such a brutal and uncompromising fashion 
uh, was the implication that in terms of that formal justice through legal means, rape and violence towards women is something that is simply not taken seriously enough. And so, of course, you know, Miriam takes matters into, uh, into her own hands. Is that a fair interpretation? And were, were you seeking to, to make that point along those more political lines, should we say? You know, I think it's really, um, I think it's what you've said is really important. And I think um, it's definitely something that we weren't making that direct point, but it was in our minds of this is something that it's uh, something that we've talked about a lot is um, how it can almost feel like a straitjacket when you go through, when you um, are a victim of sexual assault and there's and there's really not a lot you can do, um, especially if it's years after the fact there's you're really your hands are so tied and it's so frustrating and it's like you're just coming up against a wall and I think that is that's the reason why these kinds of films are so um kind of are cathartic and are a release for people and so yeah I think I think that's something that needs to be talked about I mean one thing we were talking about just yesterday is is the there's this great charity in the U.S. called End the Backlog and there isn't something similar in Canada, and I'm not sure if there is in the UK, but there's all of these untested rape kits in across the US. Um, and then I started to research Canada and, in, and it's the same in Canada, thousands that haven't been, that haven't been tested. That, so there's these women who are just in limbo waiting to find out if they're ever gonna get justice. I think also at the same time, it's important to note that the film is, definitely taking a very clear stance on revenge. We're showing you how it completely destroys this woman's life. And the very last shot of the film, we see uh, what looks like regret or remorse, but it's too late. She can't do anything. She's totally not only destroyed her own life, but she's destroyed her sister's life. Um, And so the, the film is clearly showing an audience that this type of violent, um, revenge, this kind of, um, vengeance is, is definitely not the answer. And there are several points in the film where Miriam gives Dylan, the brother-in-law, a, a point to uh, to work this out. And, and also with her sister, there are these moments where the film could have turned a completely different corner and um, they could have resolved this issue without bringing in the police, without um, you know extreme forms of punishment. And I think we live in such a divisive society right now where it's, it's very black and white. Um, and I I think it's incredibly unhealthy and all it does is it really discourages people from thinking that they can openly have these types of conversations in a way where there is some healthy reconciliation between both parties. Yeah. I think the, the, the main thing for us with all of our films is creating empathy and, and that's in the way that we deal with the, the characters. So we, we never want anyone to be purely, good or purely evil um and really we want to show how could this woman get to this point um and create empathy in the audience of an understanding of yes i see i see how she got here but it's also not the answer when filming this uh this sort of quite brutal and quite, and quite disturbing film with this sort of subject matter how did you how did you manage that on set i mean it, it, um from what you said it was it sounded like quite a, a tight filming schedule but there's there's obviously stories of um like the making of Pasolini's Sailor, where during the downtime the cast and crew would go and play football with the, against the crew from a Bertolucci film. That I think was you know they were filming nearby. So I mean, was that filming process? Yeah, I mean, you said that you were in character a lot of the time rehearsing. Was it was it quite intense? And you you were there to do this, and that was it. Or was were there those moments of camaraderie and levity despite the film's con- content? 
I think we had such a close knit small crew um, that we'd worked with uh, many times before. So there was definitely a feeling of um, camaraderie and, and levity and just that kind of we're all here to tell this story and we're all passionate about it. It helped that we were living in the mountains together. We ate mm -hmm. breakfast, lunch and dinner together. We had our yeah. weekends together. We had a beautiful lake that we could go swimming in. Uh, so that was definitely helpful. But all that being said, uh, there's very sensitive sub subject. Um, and it's also there's um, really challenging scenes to film with full frontal nudity and also just the emotional depth that we were trying to push Madeline to in, in some of those sequences where, where we knew we had to film that for a whole day, that, that emotional state and, and Madeline being in that state for that long, you know, is very taxing. So I think it required a lot of patience and sensitivity on set, but because we had, again, such a respectful professional crew, um, th those boundaries were, were set really early on mm -hmm. in the filming process. And I think everyone was really respectful and, trusting and, and it was really about a transparency um and an open dialogue with everyone um there was it was about communicating how everyone was feeling at all times so that everyone was operating on the same amount of information and we were creating a real safe space where everyone could do their best work and know what people need to do their best work um, and create spaces for people uh, and pay and being patient sometimes um because we were in a very intense scene madeline would need time to prepare to get into it or would need time between the first take and the next take. Even if we were running out of time, it was like we had to give her that time. And, you know, it, it could be frustrating to a technician who's told they're not allowed a certain amount of time because we're rushing to get the shot. Then all of a sudden the actor wants time and they could get easily frustrated by that. But I think it was a, a mutual respect and understanding of everyone's process mm -hmm. and then just giving everyone the space they needed to do that. And yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think, um, everyone had pretty much everyone on the crew had worked with us before. So they knew the kind of unusual parts of, of our process and were totally on board with it. And everyone was so respectful. And I think actually one thing we did that was amazing was nobody had their phones. Oh yeah. This set. is, this is a Werner Herzog thing. We, we, we Herzog talk about no phones and we're yeah. like, Oh, is this, we could do this. Um, and there was a lot of, um, frustration at first or maybe not at first throughout <laughs> like having a tackle box where everyone has to put their phone in but, but it really just makes every it kind of galvanized everyone it made everyone present and everyone's there doing putting in the same amount of effort at the same time yeah you're you're just so used to seeing people you know on their phones between setups and they're just disengaged from their work and we're just so interested in this idea of doing your best work and inspiring everyone to push the form however you can in the moment. And you're never going to do that if you're just trying through Instagram. Yeah. If you're just like doing the bare minimum of whatever your position is. Um, and I think once you get the keys to really support that idea, then it kind of trickles down really quickly. Um, but I noticed presence on set mm -hmm. and it was that presence where you start to feel it's electric. You, you start to feel like the set is alive and it's, um, it's living and, and we're reacting to each other in a very instant sort of way. And people were just having conversations. I, I remember a couple of people on the crew uh, commenting about how, oh, I never on other sets, I don't really have conversations with people in between setups. And 
and when there's downtime and we're just I'm actually we're actually all talking to each other and learning things about each other just finally guys what what's the next project that you're you're working on I mean as as already said I mean it's such a bold and such a uh, a kind of challenging debut feature I mean to come out of the come out of the gates with this is is really commendable um are, are you thinking that the next film uh, that you're working on will it be as will it be as challenging will it be as dark do you think so having made this movie now for three years and sitting in the edit room watching cut after cut after cut um it was torturous no pun intended <laughs> so um i can only commend anyone who's watched this movie more than once it's one of those films that it's it's important to see but then it's challenging to rewatch it i think we're really super excited to do something completely different um, we have a wide range of tastes creatively and mm-hmm. um, i think the thing that will always be a through line in our work is relationship dynamics um, putting performance first and really looking at kind of the the micro uh, kind of di- the dynamics of, of humanity, like really looking at how uh, behavior it, uh, unravels in a very specific way. Um, so for us, we're, we're writing a dark comedy yeah. <laughs> next, which is couldn't be more different and uh, a mystery thriller, I would say. Mystery drama thriller. Mystery drama thriller. Yeah. Are either of those close to starting shooting or is it a, a while off? Yeah. Oh, no. I think we're, we've just started writing yeah. one and we're outlining another. It would be great to film one of them next year. But again, financing is... So that's uh, what we're aiming for. Precarious. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, best of luck with both of those and well done again with the film. It is really quite something. I can't wait to see what you guys do, do in the future. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks a lot. It was really nice to talk to you.